Caritas Perkheimer begins her Journal of the Reformation years with a clear outline of what she intends to write. What follows, she says, are descriptions of some of the things that happened to our cloister here at St. Clair's in Nuremberg in these dangerous, rebellious times, along with some letters written at the same time. The inclusion of letters to, from, and regarding the convent build Caritas's narrative. She includes letters from the mothers of nuns wanting and waiting to take their daughters from the enclosed life because they now believe that this convent life is unknown to God, nothing but a human invention or heretical deviation. She includes letters from the city council that offer a sort of St Paul-inspired critique of her convent life. And she includes letters written by herself in defence of the benefits of their monasticism and the important role that the convent had played in their long foundation history. These letters provide evidence for her claims and importantly memorialise not only the events but the unity and particularly the emotional togetherness of her community in the face of external attack. She uses text to negotiate the common memory of her convent and resist challenges to it. Around a decade later in England, amid the context of the minor dissolution, amid the context of governmental visitations and of continental religious upheaval, Dartford Priory's long-standing prioress Elizabeth Cressener wrote to Thomas Cromwell with the communal good of her convent in mind, asking especially that we may not receive into our monastery none of any other religion. Cressener asserted not only the strongly ordered identity of these Dominican women, but also implied the formidable strength of communal feelings between this single Dominican English order. For we be of that profession and habit that none other be of within this realm, and therefore it should be very troublous to us to have any other than we bring up after our own order and fashion as knoweth our merciful Lord. Paul Lee has pointed out that since Cressner was prioress since before the turn of the 16th century, and that with most nuns still claiming a pension as late as 1556, the Dartford community was made up of women who had all kind of professed under the same abbess and therefore had much more in common with each other than the, the, which made them sort of different from other nuns around them. This communal unity, this common identity through religious devotion and togetherness, is asserted in the writing in the hope of negotiating against Cromwell's proposed changes and challenges. For these two women, the construction of these texts from within the convent offered a way to negotiate the challenges of their authority and monastic ways of life that opposed and threatened by external forces and allowed them to reassert resistance, not simply as single women writing, but by asserting a strength as a unified community. Writing allowed Cressner and Perkheimer to respond to the reformation of their convents through the assertion of themselves as communities, offering defensive, resistant and intelligent strength to their wants and claims through words. Elizabeth Cressner, leader of the Dominican Dartford Priory, and Caritas Perkheimer, abbess of St. Clair's Franciscan Sisters in Nuremberg, appear fairly distinct as case studies in women responding to the reformation. I don't need to point out to you that Cressner is, you know, she's writing not even within the Reformation context, but as a sort of minor event in the dissolution. And yet I still think in comparison, these communities offer parallels and they appear not only hard to ignore, but illuminating in how religious women who are 
separated by such distance, yet still they can use text to negotiate with this outside world. Both sets of communities experience a fundamental change in the reaction and acceptance of women of their vocation and in their way of life. And both were forced to react and alter their lives within these communities as a reformation, whether the one that we're talking about today, or more institutional uh, dissolution process, progressed. This work comes out of my thesis, and it's where I've used German com convents in a kind of comparative aspect to three English case studies. Here is there, I think. The comparative aspect of looking at mendicant-ordered Caritas Perkheimer alongside Elizabeth Cressner offers a more complete understanding through which to draw conclusions about the sort of nature of early modern 16th century female religious textual responses to external threat and criticism. Mary Wiesner Hanks has pointed out like the the focus of female religious writing is important, and not only in a sort of practical sense of their generally being more literate as women and their work being saved through institutions. This is true in Germany, but as my poor thesis will tell you, far less true uh, in the English context because there kind of is no institutions anymore, but in a more cultural Reformation context. The Protestant rejection of celibacy and monastic vows had a great impact on women religious, one of the first moves of an area rejecting Catholicism was to close the monasteries and the convents, either confiscating material immediately or forbidding new novices from joining. In England and Ireland, where all convents were taken over by the Crown, most nuns got very small pensions and were expected to return home to the families, and whether they did that or not, that was still the sort of implication. In the face of a propaganda pamphleteering culture employed by German reformers, such textual defence by Caritas Perkheimer skillfully employing a humanistic training to counter each of these claims within her journal seems a really appropriate way for her to negotiate and resist the changes and challenges that are affronting her. For Elizabeth Cressner, textual negotiation was the only way in which to communicate with the man who had power over the future of the convent. Even if she's not ideologically in correspondence against the Reformation, she remains a contemporary example of female autonomy in the face of enclosure and the sort of reforming of these communities expressed specifically through text. In comparison, therefore, I think these limited but illuminating sources can help examine how women religious across seemingly huge boundaries assert their communities as an active form of agency, do so through negotiation and opposition in text. The Journal of Caritas Perkheimer is a self-conscious narrative of a convent through the German Reformation quickly escalating from a struggle between the convent and their male leaders in both religious and secular terms, it goes on to present something of a theological battle between the outside world and a united, for the most part, sisterhood. I think you can see this as a community through text, created through text. Jennifer Wynne Hellwood's adaptation of Brian Stock's textual community concept takes the gender of its inhabitants more into account, to particular to women's textual practice. She further judges that such female textual communities, alongside other networks of uh, textual exchange and, and dissemination, were essential in the production and dissemination of knowledge. Communities involving women religious so often relate back to the texts which define and connect them. But I think you can also see them as using texts to go forward, to further causes, to negotiate roles in the face of criticism. Adopting the condescending tone of their wild and renegade male critics, Caritas skillfully weaved the rhetoric of reformers not with her own assertions of the importance of monastic life, 
not of the practical and spiritual aid and advancement she felt she was providing for these enclosed women, or even without an out hostility. It was instead a strongly formed sense of community within her convent with which she reacted. The voices of dissent and tribulation appear at once almost comical in hysteria, but also importantly, out of step with her own community, which is presented as much calmer and more together. After detailing the much quoted reason of reformers against monasticism, they preached to us and spoke to us of new teachings and argued incessantly that the cloister was damned and subject to temptations and that it was impossible for them to attain salvation there. We were all damned. And the attempts of city officials to manoeuvre this spiritual focus away from a sacramental system. Abbess Perkheimer contrasts this with the reaction of women in her care. When we learned that the Honourable City Council had decided to force us to stop using the Franciscans, I reported this to the convent and sought the sisters' advice. No sister wants to be subject to wild priests and renegade monks. Instead, we should submit an appeal to make it clear what burden and injury would result from such a change in the hope that potential harm to us would touch their hearts. And so I followed their advice and read it out loud to the convent. All the sisters, with no exceptions, agreed with it. The communal ideal created by phrasing of we and us and of joint decision making is particularly employed by the abbess in the face of disjointed and what would become really aggressive reforming words and actions to create, through text, a rhetoric and practical unification. The irony here that she really flags up is that the reformer critics so frequently focus on the word of God and the word as imperative. And it's treated particularly ironically uh, by Caritas in this way that well, we can go back to the word as well. It goes back to the St. Paul kind of differentiation. This demonstration of active communal agency, echoed again and again throughout the journal, is contrasted against what Caritas asserted was the reformer's view of the convent. Sarcastically quoting that, in all cloisters are wildlife insured. Abbess Perkheimer used her writing to cleverly contrast the chaos and disruption that was brought around them by reforming thought with a structured and almost democratic community inside. In her description of Anna Schwartz, who began to live as a Lutheran, Caritas employs this dramatic opposition, a kind of dramatic irony in the form of a story. She set herself up in opposition to her sisters. When the convent sat at the table, she slept. When they were in the choir, she ate. She was uninhibited and did whatever she wanted to. She said she did not want to be a sheep, but a shepherdess. By that, she meant she could perform the office of the abbess too, since she was so learned and clever. The stark contrast to the really devout sisters um, needs, no, needs no explanation, really. Each of these sisters had, without exception, all voted unanimously that they would keep the rule that they had vowed to God and in no way wanted to, did not want to obey the rule which the council had given them. Again, it's interesting to note Caritas's writing of them as a group, presenting their togetherness as an active force, as an agency against those which both diminish their function and belittle their sense of self. Decisions regarding the future of the convent are presented as being made communally. We agreed amongst ourselves that in no way we would give up the cloister. In reply to the council's assertion that it was she, Caritas alone, who should release all the sisters from the vows that they'd taken so that they could make use of Christian freedom, they would no longer be obligated or forced to do something because instead they'd be able to exercise their own free will so that it could cease and desist whenever they wanted. It was as a single body, 
and not without, again, this touch of knowing irony, that all these women responded, except we assume Farnish was. Humbly and willingly, they stated that they did not want to be free. Elizabeth Cressner of Dartford Priory, on the other hand, expressed community togetherness through the contradictions that lay at the heart of a very difficult negotiation with secular authorities keen to quieten and close them down. It was through textual contradictions that such community spirit was expressed. From 1488 to her death just before the suppression, Cressner was at the heart, the centre of negotiations between convent and government in the run-up to the end of her life. In the same letter, in which she makes a successful claim to avoid taking on any other nuns from different orders, Cressner reflected on a direct appeal that she'd made a couple of years earlier to Cromwell, demonstrating a supreme personal and communal agency when regarding the spiritual well-being of the convent. Remember that, remembering that Cromwell wanted to place a certain Mr Palmer, one of his friends and connections, in the role of High Steward at Dartford, Cressner reflected that, at the time, I was so bold to write to your mastership my mind and all my sisters in that cause, certifying your good mastership that we never had none that occupied that room but such as hath been of the King's Grace's most noble council. She then lists who had held the office, demonstrating a real pronounced understanding and sort of status of Dartford over a long period of time, as well as articulating a shared memory that bound the community. She goes on then to suggest, request, that Cromwell himself accept the office. We, the nuns, would beseech you to accept such a poor gift given to your mastership by your poor bedwomen with the fee thereunto belonging. Her additional request regarding the identity of new recruits into the priory is couched in similar terms, beseeching you of your charitable assistance in all our rightful causes. A similar appeal to intervene is made a bit later on in a very difficult case with somebody who seems very difficult. He's called Mr Strodel and nobody gets on with him from the sounds of it. Um, <laughs> the Lord of Rochester placed him at Dartford because he perceived that he could not live quietly with him. So it's like giving him off. Um, the prioress's words here belie an internal power struggle that both threatens her authority and the stability of her community. She says, regarding Mr Strodel, that as soon as he came back, he took it upon himself to be president, contrary to my mind, but only that he said that he had the king's grace's authority, which I now perceive he never had, till this time of your good lordship, and he took no manner of pains belonging to the said office. To combat this, she again asserts her influence and her belief in this power by beginning, your suppliant, Elizabeth Cressner, prioress of the monastery of Dartford, for which hath been this 49 years unworthy governess of this great house, and the togetherness of a convent. My only hope and trust is in God and in your good lordship for the repealing or reformation of the premises, and I, with my poor sisters, shall always con continue to be your poor women, as we be especially bound. It's this relationship between Cromwell and Cressener, as the prioress applies for favours from the prominent master of the convent's own advantage, and resulting perhaps in special protection for Dartford, that Mary Ciela has outlined as particularly acute on the prioress's part. She went on to place Cresson's letter in a late medieval and early modern Kent context, suggesting that they provide a sense of the forces to which religious houses were subject, both from lay and ecclesiastical allies. In terms of the practicality of the good of her community, Elizabeth Cresson's attempt at fealty with Cromwell were far more based within a contradictory negotiation of power in order to keep her community together and the sort of spiritual and practical good it was doing alive. 
In attempting to form an alliance with one of the most important men in the country through text, Cressner was trying to maintain her community and fulfil the societal functions that had become particularly important under her leadership. Cressner tried these oblique and contradictory forms of opposition, that of the appearance of subservience and the appearance of encouragement. It's interesting, I think, to know as a bit of an aside that the oath of 1534 was left unsigned by each Dartford nun. It's difficult to say whether this is a point of decision or not, but it could appear, I think, in the context of this contradictory form of power negotiation, that this silence could have been a measure of passive opposition from the Dartford women, who were not able to make their point through text, and so did it by omission, if you like. Just some conclusions. I think you can see here that text is a way of memorialising community and preserving and asserting dominance and authority of the women at the centre. These appeals to a shared communal past of convents in writing histories or about the histories of the convent seem to provide con concrete textual legitimacy in the face of external threat. And the community, expressed through a shared language and asserting a calm and unified togetherness, is asserted through text to provide opposition based within the historical, time-specific kind of experience, textually forming an understanding of the internal with the challenges of the external. Thanks very much. Thank you very much both uh, Meta and Liz. Um, I'm trying to sum up, I mean, on the one hand, these seem very different papers and topics, so we have uh, 